Today's readings are Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9, and Isaiah 42, verse 8. They can be found on pages 931 and 669 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. <clears throat> Mark 9, 2 to 8. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and, <clears throat> and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Isaiah 42.8 I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. The word of the Lord. Thank you for the scripture reading. And my voice does boom, so I hope it doesn't hurt your ears, especially when I get excited. I Sometimes when pastors take vacation, it's sometimes hard to go to church because you can't go to your home church because once you step in the door, you're no longer on vacation. So often I will slip in here on vacation, and it's, it's been a thrill to me to watch this church continue to develop and grow and mature. And it's exciting to me that um, you all are taking a step of going to classes to become what's called an organized or an established church where you'll have leadership of your own. And it's, it's really, um, I'm very, uh, I praise God and I, I give Mark a lot of credit because this task of church planting is no small or easy thing. And, and so I really, you know, I really appreciate what God has done through him, and I appreciate the, the sacrifice that, that he and Lisa have put in for a, a good number of years. And, and that kind of brings me to the point of that passage that we just saw, that Isaiah passage. I am the Lord, I will not share my glory with another. That sounds egotistical. And in fact, the, in the, the lectionary, which is this, which is this forum of texts that churches around the world use to kind of go through the Bible in an orderly way. Traditionally, before Ash Wednesday comes Transfiguration Sunday, where the churches read that passage of the Transfiguration. And it's a, it's a rather strange story for Americans to listen to, but it wouldn't be a strange story for a lot of ancient audiences. What's, what's far stranger for ancient audiences would have been the Christmas story where Jesus is born as a, a, a baby, as a human baby that will soil swaddling clothes, that will need to eat, that will get sick, that will get the flu. Most ancient people would have said that would be undignified and unbelievable for a god to take a form like that. And, and the transfiguration, however, would be exactly what they would imagine, that Jesus would be bright and glowing and shining and that the disciples would worship him. 
Uh, that's also not a very, that, that this would all be a very uncomfortable story for a group of Jews, however, who had a very, who had a very specific idea about what belongs to God the Creator, a very unique perspective in the ancient world, and, and then this man glowing like the sun. But then God, again, in the book of Isaiah, comes along and says he is, in a sense, jealous of his glory, and he doesn't want to share with anyone. And this, in many ways, makes him sound egotistical. You know, what is, let's see, an envious egotist? What, what is, hero, you know, part of the, I think, what's, some of what's going on, it's always fun to see what the, what the image, what's, what's going on here in the Soul Collective. Obviously, if you look around at these pictures, you say, well, there, there are a bunch of women, there are no men, and there are women of color, and there are, um, you know, there are gender nonconformists and all of that. Well, obviously, the, the, the portrayal in this way wants to bring glory to people. And, well, is that wrong? Is that unchristian? Is, doesn't this just simply make God sound like an egotist? That he says, glory is mine, I'll share it with none other. And, and in fact, you'll often hear Christians make comments like this. You might, you might thank someone for their message. And let's say after the service, if you like the message, you come to say, oh, Pastor Paul, I enjoyed your message. And I'll say, well, praise God. And, 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 and when you hear that, part of you is going to say, yeah, okay, but I meant to say thank you to you. And, and yeah, God is glorious and everything, but I appreciate it. Can't you just say thank you? <laughs> oh, no, because I, I want to give all glory to God, and so that means no glory to me. But, of course, we all listen to this, and it kind of becomes a little game, right? Because then, well, I'm so holy that I always give all glory to God, and, <laughs> and so in, the, in that way, I'm kind of around the bout, making myself glorious, aren't I? And so this, this, this verse, I don't know if it bothers you, it, it has always kind of bothered me. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. Because we in America, we believe in equality. Equality is our big value. And some of you may recognize the picture, which is a little bit of irony there. But, but right now, I think the fight we're going to have in our culture right now will be kind of these two visions of equality. Second one, sometimes called equity, where there's equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome. And, and even if you just look at the picture, you think, yeah, we want, we want everybody to be able to see over the wall. Well, actually, we'd probably like everybody to have a ticket to get into the stadium, which actually, if we think about this for a moment, might invite us into a little deeper conversation about why we want equality. Because on one hand, we say, we want everybody, which either vision of equality you have, we want everybody to have an equal chance, an equal opportunity, an equal access, but at the same time, each of us wants the house on the beach. We want the, we want the the house on the beach, not the house a few rows back that you have to use the public access to the public beach. Because I grew up in New Jersey, and when we'd go to the shore, you didn't go to the shore alone in New Jersey. You went to the shore with, you know, just about everyone else from New Jersey, and the shore was about as packed as this room is here. And, and we want the good job and the desirable spouse. And, and all these egalitarians are longing for VIP access. 
Well, well, there's absolutely nothing egalitarian about VIP, but we all want it. And we want the best food, and we want to win. And when we win, we want to be recognized as winning. And so I think for part of us, the reason we want equality is we don't want someone getting too far out in front of us. And we don't want someone having an unfair advantage because really we all climb ladders and we don't want others to get ahead of us. So on one end we're ambitious and on the other hand we're afraid. And it sounds terribly magnanimous to say, well, we want to give everyone an equal opportunity, but when it comes right down to it, I, I really do imagine that if given an equal opportunity, I will excel, or at least I should at least get what's fair, and in my mind, I determine what's fair. Now, there are a lot of actually stories in the Bible that deal with this. One of my favorite is in the book of Esther, where, where the story starts where King Xerxes, the emperor of Persia, decides he wants to display his glory, and so he first invites the nobility and the other kings of his kingdom, and, and for 180 days he has a feast, and, and everyone can eat the best foods, and he trots out all of his treasures. He trots out gold and, and jewels and animals and and images of his works, and he displays his glory so that everyone can enjoy it. And then he wants to go a step further, and, and he invites the entire city of Susa, his citadel, and he, he throws an extended party and says, everyone, open bar for the whole city, and everyone can drink as much as they want. And then he says, well, there's something I haven't shown you. It's my wife, and she is hot. And, and, and so then we learn that actually Vashti, his wife, has been having a separate party with the women where she's been doing the same thing, where she's been showing all the ladies. Have you ever wondered why it's women's magazines that have beautiful women on the cover? Why is that? And, and so she's been, having a, she's been doing the same thing with the women, and then the, the eunuch comes in and says, the king wants you to make an appearance. An appearance? What am I, a piece of meat that he's going to show me off for his glory? And so she sends a message back to the eunuch, says, I ain't coming. Well, you don't just say that to a Persian emperor. You ain't coming. She's lucky she got away with her life with this, but basically the punishment was, you're no longer queen, you're banished. I'm never going to see you again. But then when he kind of got over his anger, then it's like, oh man, she was hot. I, I miss her. And so then all of his, his court officials are, well, well we got to make him feel better. So I know what we'll do. We'll have a beauty contest. Because wealthy, powerful men love running beauty contests. And they also love cycling through wives for, for younger wives. I don't know if you've ever heard of anybody who does this. But, but it seems like everybody does this, at least if you reach a certain level, if you're, if you're a winner. Don't, I... so, so then his official says, Here, here's what we'll do. We'll send out people throughout the country, and we'll find the most beautiful women in all of the empire, and we'll bring them here. And now we can't just have these girls just fresh from the farm. 
we'll give them all the beauty treatments and we'll, you know, I don't know, probably in that, in that culture they plumped them up instead of starving them. But, and then night after night you can go through them and see what you think. And if you find one that you really like, you can make And of course, you have the story of Esther. But here's the strange thing. This is all about glory. And, and the glory of these young men, women was what? Their beauty. And, and so now we have difficult conversations about, about, about glory because their, glory, that their beauty should be their glory. But what's the relationship between that glory and their person and can it be used? And, oh, it all gets so complicated. Here's the thing. We want to possess glory. And, and, you know, here we sit in a room surrounded by pictures of women, but that one portrait of one woman is worth how much more than any of these photographs? Why? Is, is she more beautiful than any one of these women on the wall? Why, why do people line up and, and, and in fact, perhaps fly all the way around the world just to stand and gaze at this one picture. Why is that? It's because others want it. Well, well, what's going on with all of this stuff? Why do we want to possess glory? You see, part of the difficulty is that there is really no way to equal. If, if I, as a young boy, decided I wanted to be a fast runner, and if you know young boys, they... They want to be strong. They want to be fast. So let's say I decided I wanted to be the fastest runner. So I, 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 I trained and I started track and I started doing everything I, I could do to become the fastest runner in the world. I bet if that was my goal, even from youth, I would never run faster than Hussein Bolt. Never. Never. There's, there's no... I'll never play basketball better than LeBron James. You might say, well, you're tall. Yeah, LeBron is taller. LeBron is stronger. The world is inherently unequal. And if you really want a lesson in this, read Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond, which, which basically starts when he's in Papua New Guinea because he's a biologist. And, and, and one, of, one, of, one, of the, one of his friends who was a, a native Papua New Guinean said, why do you white people have so much stuff? He thought, why do we have so much stuff? So then he starts to do some research and he writes this book that basically says, well, you know, the, the mass extinction of Native Americans, that die was cast maybe 15,000 years ago when they came across the Bering Strait and killed most of the Ice Age animals and there were hardly any domesticatable animals so they didn't live with animals, so they didn't develop, they didn't develop diseases like influenza and smallpox and malaria so that when the Europeans came over, you know, it was a foregone conclusion that these people were going to be wiped out because they didn't have any native immunity because the continents just didn't have domesticatable animals. You think, I never knew that. Yeah, there's no such thing as equal. C.S. Lewis, a great line said, equality is good medicine, but it's bad food. Think about that. 
Kurt Vonnegut, I don't know if you've ever read this short story, named Harrison Bergeron, tells a story about a world where they decided to enforce equality of outcomes. So, so in the short story, there's this bizarre ballet dance where all the ballerinas wears, weigh certain weight so that any inherent inequalities of strength would be normalized. And people who were brighter than other people genetically received shots in the arm to dull their brains. And people who had really good vision had to wear glasses that made their vision less so. And really strong people had to wear weights so that they could you know, not excel beyond any other. And so here in this strange, bizarre world that Kurt Vonnegut describes, everyone is equal. Until, of course, the people who have been dragging weights figure out how to take off their weights. And now, not, now they're not only genetically stronger, they're way stronger than everyone else. But then they're killed, because it can't be allowed. As George Orwell mentions, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. And so when God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not yield my glory to another, we hate him for it. We do. We hate him. You know what I'm talking about. Because, because here's the thing about God. A, a lot of people imagine Judgment Day is that you go and you meet God and, and God says, ah, ah, I hear, have a list of rules and you failed the list of rules or you made the list of rules and you know, either you get reward for doing the rules or punished for not doing the rules. The thing I have about a lot of New Agers is I don't think they take God seriously enough, not in terms of judgment, but in terms of beauty. Because here's the crazy thing about beauty. If, if you're in a beauty pageant, why, why are those beauty pageants known for being so catty? And who does everyone hate? They hate the prettiest girl in the room. Now that's a difference of tiny little or if you go to a great school, if you, get a, if, you get, if you get admitted to Harvard and you were the, by far the brightest person in your class and then you go to Harvard, what do you learn? There's people way smarter than me. Then how do you feel about them? Now imagine seeing a being smart enough to create the universe with a word. Beautiful enough that all beauty comes from him, powerful enough that he holds in his hand not just stars but galaxies. What does that do to your ego? There's a reason in the book of Revelation where God shows up and the powerful, the generals, and the slaves, and the little people of the world cry out to the mountain and say, fall on us and save us from his face. We can't bear to see him. Why not? Because just seeing him in the light of him, we look small and pitiful and horrible. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another. But what is glory? Imagine, if you will, the best baker in the world, and, and this best, best baker bakes the best cake. Well, well, the cake sits there on a table, and, well, do you know its glory yet? No, because its glory can't be known until what? It's cut and given out. And then, when you're given the piece of cake and you taste it, you say, oh, 
I've never had cake like this before. Now, the baker has a choice. The baker can walk around the room and say, do you like it? Do you like it? I made that. I, I made that cake. What would that do to the glory? It would diminish it. In fact, probably what the baker would do would stay hidden, maybe behind a glass wall, put the cake there, and just watch people, and watch people's eyes light up. Now, now imagine, however, if someone in the room is also a baker, and they taste the cake, and they say, oh, I can't make cake this good. Did you ever see, how many of you have ever seen the movie Amadeus? That's what the movie is about, where, where Salieri hears the beautiful mu music of Amadeus Mozart and says, I can't make music this good. And he doesn't just hate Mozart, he hates God. And there's a great scene in the movie where he, he basically says, I am God's enemy for taking his gift and putting it in someone who is silly and unworthy as Mozart. And, and notice sometimes, if you will, when envy takes up residence in your heart, if you, if you go, to, go to work and this one person is getting all of the promotions and getting all of the pay raises, and it'd be easier to, th to know that this is happening because of corruption or, or because of they're, they're somehow having in to get it. But what if they deserve it? And you know that they are excelling and you're not. Don't you hate them for it just for who they are? C.S. Lewis in his great sermon, The Weight of Glory, and I have to deal with that because I think C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory is better than any sermon I will ever preach. And so in my heart, I have to decide, will I point you to his sermon? Because, hey, yeah, I, I, I like Paul's sermon, but boy, that's C.S. Lewis. <laughs> and, and that just, it, it shows exactly what Lewis is talking about when he talks about the specific pleasure of the inferior. And, and we as Americans hear that and say, well, that, that just sounds wrong. Well, glory suggests two ideas to me. This is C.S. Lewis. Of which one seems wicked and the other ridiculous. Either glory means to me fame or it means luminosity. As for the first, since to be famous means to be better known than other people, the desire for fame appears to be a competitive passion and therefore of hell rather than heaven. As for the second, who wishes to become a kind of living electric light bulb? And isn't this the story of the transfiguration? Jesus is kind of there like a living electric light bulb. And you say, well, what is this story about? Then I began to look into the matter, and I was shocked to find such different Christians as Milton, Johnson, and Thomas Aquinas taking heavenly glory, quite frankly, in the sense of fame and good report, but not fame conferred by our fellow creatures, but fame with God, approval, or I might say, appreciation by God. And then I had thought it over, and I saw that this view was scriptural. Nothing can, be, nothing can eliminate from the parable of the divine accolade, well done, thou good and faithful servant. With that, a good deal of what I had been thinking all my life fell down like a house of cards. I suddenly remembered that no one can enter, he enter heaven except as a child, and nothing is so obvious in a child, 
not a conceited child, but a good child, has its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. Not only in a child either, but even in a dog or a horse. Apparently what I had mistaken for humility had all these years prevented me from understanding what is in fact the humblest, most childlike, most creaturely of pleasures, nay, the specific pleasure of the inferior, the pleasure of a beast before men, a child before its father, a pupil before his teacher, and a creature before its creator. So why should God enjoy godness and keep it from us? Isn't that the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? But here's the thing. Verses have chapters. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. This is God delighting in another. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching the islands, which means the nations, will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentile. Who's he speaking to? To open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place. New things I declare before they spring into being. I announce them to you. In Christianity, the Trinity, the gods share one essence but in three persons. And what happens in the incarnations is one of those persons says, I will be your son. Well, what, what, what do you mean, son? There isn't a father and mother and they have sex and have a child. What does that language mean? I will be your son. Well, to the ancient world it meant, you will be my father and I will do as you say. I will be the inferior. And so Jesus enjoys the specific pleasure of the inferior. And he brings justice, not as the world does, not, a, not by grabbing the oppressor and, and, and crushing their will to somehow make things equal, because the problem is you don't really have justice until it's free on both sides. Well, well how can it be free on both sides unless the heart of the oppressor and the oppressed are transformed. You see, and, and what is said here is that the, the, the bruised reed he will not break and the smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Well, what does that mean? Well, this is picked up in the Gospel of Matthew about Jesus where it says, he is gentle and kind and brings justice not by tearing down some oppressive structure, well, then how 
can he bring justice? Because that's the only way we understand how justice comes. He will not cry out in the street. He will not gather a mob. Paul says this is what we should be like, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage, although he and not us had this. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Naked, brutalized, stripped, beaten, humiliated. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. You see, here's the thing. There's no safe place to locate glory. Because to the degree that God gives you glory, if you take it, you read Tolkien, if you watch The Lord of the Rings, that's the story there. You can't wield the ring. It will corrupt you. So what must you do? Well, you give your glory to him. And yet, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Whoops, got to go back. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. Two wings they covered their face, two they covered their feet, and two they were flying. And they called, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty. He is so far above us, even angels cover their face. Yet, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Well, what does that mean? It means that he, like the, like the baker, sets out the cake before us. And what is he looking for? He's looking for us to taste his gifts. And to say, and then actually, if you taste the cake, you might be willing to, you might be moved to say, I need to know who baked this. I want why he gave it freely. I want to know his heart. And, and, and at that moment, if you see the source of the glory and you desire the source of the glory for its beauty, not in competition with our own demands, then and only then can we actually enjoy him. And then somehow, it all makes sense. He doesn't Does he share his glory? Yes and no, kind of. He, we give it to him, and what does he do? He just gives it out freely. You see, he doesn't just take his cake and give it to critics. He does that. He also brings it out and lays it on the street where the homeless can find it. This is... The kind of thing he does with glory. So, well, that gets to where David's going to take over because here's the funny thing. Jesus shows up on the mountain like kind of a light bulb and he shows his disciples the glory and then Peter says, let's build booths so we can capture it. And Peter, no, you don't understand. I'm about to show you my glory 
And so in John 13, he gathers disciples together, and what does he do? He takes off his clothing, and he wraps a towel around himself, and he starts washing their feet. And then he takes this, this Passover Seder and says, I'm changing this meal. This meal will be about me. But it'll be about me in this way. And so the Gospel of John calls this the crucifixion, his glorification. Well, you can understand that if you read Philippians 2. And so that now he gives it to you. And what are you supposed to do with it? Well, don't play games like, oh, yeah, glory to God. <laughs> that was a good sermon, wasn't it? No. Just say thank you. You don't really have to draw attention to yourself or to your piety. But we do as he does. We pour ourselves out to the undeserving, and we leave it there. David.